Hey, I'm two-time survivor Rob Sesternino and host of Rob Has a Podcast right here on Podcast One. I'm breaking down what just happened on reality TV competitions like Survivor, Big Brother, The Amazing Race, and more. We're talking with all your favorite players and interviewing the new contestants after they get eliminated about just how badly they screwed everything up. So come on over and talk about reality TV with me on Rob Has a Podcast in the TV and film section here on Podcast One anytime or at least until they vote me out. True Car is changing car buying forever. True Car helps car buyers get rid of the fear that they might overpay. Just in the first six months of this year, over 275,000 cars were sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network, and True Car users save an average of $3,221 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy a car, just follow these three easy steps. First, go to truecar.com to find out what others paid for the car you want. Then register to see upfront pricing information and lock in your savings. Third step is simple. Just print out your savings certificate, take it to the True Car Certified Dealer for a better, hassle-free car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. To see how much you can save on the car you want, simply download the True Car mobile app. That's right. Download the True Car mobile app or visit TrueCar.com today. That is TrueCar, T-R-U-E, car.com. This is Corolla Digital. Welcome, Doctor Who Podcast. A uh, couple bits of business. Be sure to support the pirate ship by uh, checking out those swinging sounds you're listening to. Three volumes now. Get them all. Get them all. We have a three box set coming up. Uh, no, but you can make your own. Okay, make your own set. All right, well yeah, done, well something done. Something for everyone. Plus, do all your shopping at Amazon. Click through the banner at DrDrew.com. does not cost you anything extra, but it keeps wins in the sales of the pirate ship here at the Corolla Network. Uh, and be sure to support the sponsors that support us here uh, on this podcast, because I like doing them, and I want to keep doing them. And it's my privilege to welcome back to the program the great Jason Waller. Thank you for having Jason, me, Jason, your last episode was number 100, I believe. It was. Well... <laughs> Here we are. We're at like 200-something, aren't we? Gary, Chris, help me. What number are we at? 180s. 180s. All right, 180s. I was hoping 200, yeah, man. Some close, close. All right, first is some uh, data on Jason. Uh, Jason, his website is Waller's Wellness, W-A-H-L-E-R-S, wallerswellness.com. Waller Jason is the Twitter handle, at Waller Jason. He has uh, E True Hollywood Story episode coming out in November. That's going to be exciting, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm totally they didn't interview blo- me for that. I know. Why I, not? Well, I, they need to call you. That was they weird. Need to figure it out. But I, I am just so Why blown didn't they away. Me for that, I've only got the greatest things to say. Well, I'm going to have them call you today. Well, they probably got. An, you know what? They probably got plenty of that. <laughs> I suspect. You know what I mean? They didn't need to pile that on. I would like it. All right. Fair enough. Well, I'm certainly available. Uh, and you have a documentary coming soon. examines how alcoholism and addiction hits everybody. Correct. Uh, and it's, you know, reducing stigma, I hope. It is. And showing 100%. how it cuts across all barriers, all lines, all socioeconomic brackets, all educational statuses. It's a, just like diabetes or anything else. A hundred percent. And I could, I could break that down. I actually wrote out a kind of, it's a, it's about a paragraph or two, but it's, it breaks down really good Go ahead. what we're doing. Um, when's it out? It's we're in the middle of shooting. It's probably gonna be another three, three to four months. And it's a documentary. So it's a documentary, all done in house. Just something that it's a passion of mine. You Great. know, my whole thing is the reason why I even created the Waller's Wellness website is by expressing vulnerability. It creates humility, um, and it's just it's talking about that stuff. And I think it's very, very uh, powerful. And I believe you know it's something that almost took my life multiple times. And I know it's uh, a big issue out there. So I just wanted to address it and. I feel like this is what my calling is, and, and God's gave me the whereabouts and the, the connections to do this. So it's my passion. I mean, it's basically just a short, you know, a short ex- explanation of it is, you know, I want to educate and dispel the common stereotype of alcoholics and addicts. Uh, when we put the picture on an alcoholic and or an addict, we automatically go to the derelict in the trench coat holding his bottle and the wrinkled paper bag standing over his 55-gallon barrel with a fire going. Or is it a young addict disheveled skeletal with this uh, sunken in ashen eyes searching hauntingly for an opportunity to snatch a purse or worse? Uh, the track, track, track marks evident. Uh, reality is the alcoholic or addict is your neighbor, the babysitter, CEO, your doctor, the local sheriff, the librarian, 
um, when we picture any of these persons, we know exactly what the, to expect. Uh, what we don't know or realize is that they have a disease. Yes, alcoholism and addiction is a disease. It has a gen, uh, genetic marker. It is unique in and of the fact that once triggered, not only do you have physical cravings, which most people uh, identify with, but also the effects of the, the brain chemistry. Um, uh, you know, just the, the obsession is overwhelming, um, most say crippling. As a society, we embrace, re- uh, reverse, and support almost all major diseases uh, known to mankind, except this one. Uh, there are no ribbons or fundraisers for these people. Uh, they are told to just stop or you should just cut back, or worse, just have one. Uh, The reality is we can't, and you do not understand that. Uh, It is time we as a society understand and embrace this disease. Uh, You know, lately, through the media, we have seen the deaths uh, of many well-known persons as as a direct result of this disease. Unfortunately, in Los Angeles, last night, at least five at least five people have died behind garbage cans and taken away. That's just here in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know. Oh no, let's worry about Ebola. That's much better use of our time. Exactly, and I think you know there. It's just a with a you know disgusted shake of 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 the head. You know, a judgment. Um, can you imagine if 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 uh, we treated cancer you know patients yeah. this way? Their their pink ribbons would you know would spend. I mean, it's and I suppose to some extent you know primitively societies did treat any kind of illness this way. Mm-hmm. It was all possession of the devil. But mental illness, we reserve a special stigma for. We still refer to it as battling the demons. Exactly. The fuck? Demons. Yeah. Demons, it's a brain illness. Uh-huh. There's no demons. There's no demons in my heart when I have a heart attack. There's no demons in my pancreas if I have pancreatic cancer. There's 100%. no demons in your head when you have addiction. You have a brain disorder. Exactly. Now, you brought some friends from the Northbound Treatment Center. Yes. Uh, we will, by the way, have the website and phone number up on our website at drdrew.com. So why don't you introduce Mandy and Hallie. Mandy is our clinical director, Dr. Mandy Niebel. And our new to board is uh, Hallie. She is part of our sales and marketing department. She's our director over there. So, you know, very, very well-educated females that uh, have a good understanding of the disease and the background of addiction. And uh, you guys want to pile on to what Jason was saying, Dr. Niebler? Yes. Niebel. Yes. Just Mandy's fine. All right, Mandy. Um, I've worked in addiction treatment now for nine years. This is something that I have a passion for. Prior to that, I worked as a forensic psychologist for eight years in the state um, penitentiary. And even during that period of time, there were so many inmates coming in for drug-related offenses, but there was no treatment at all. And so my passion has been to really be able to work within society to be able to change the stigma around addiction and for people to realize it really truly is a disease that needs attention. And we need to be able to start looking at it in a different way in order to gain for everyone to gain knowledge to be able to even start addressing it right now. It's just still an area that no one really wants to talk about. And so with the opportunities that Northbound holds and with the Jason, it's a perfect opportunity to start addressing issues that are still hidden. Hallie? Well, and uh, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder and a pill addiction. And um, the tri- the, the two, the, we, we used to call it the trifecta, was eating, cutting, pills. Yes. Was there cutting too? There was no cutting. Oh, you missed Thank that one. Thank the Lord. You missed that one. <laughs> but, you know, my father was a pastor, and so talk about uh, the demons, it was go pray about it. Go talk to yeah, God about it, right? right? And it was like, let's not address it. I wish. It. I wish that did it. Wouldn't I, that be I, nice I, if that's right, all it required? Right. So uh, I completely understand what you guys were talking about. And, um, yeah, Absolutely. That's interesting. And so you're sober how long now? Uh, eight years, September 12, Congratulations. 2006. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, all right. So let me, you know, there's so much we can talk about in this field. Uh, uh, in the LA, there was recently, this This will probably air a little bit after this article came out, but there was an article in the paper in Los Angeles Times that caught all of our attention recently. Uh, oh my God, the death rate from the overprescribing of oral opiates, painkillers, the Vicodin and Oxycontin, et cetera. Not just is it causing hundreds of thousands of deaths every year, that's only 2% of the problem. 98% of the problems are seen as overdoses in the emergency room that don't end up being a fatality. Oh, my God, it's affecting millions of people. Who would have thought? <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's driving me out of my mind 
the way it, and the the and the, unfortunately there's still a problem because the oh, this makes me so angry I almost can't even talk about it. My profession, which I, I you know I, I feel very deeply about, so it, it wounds me to have my profession at the helm driving this this ship into the into the rocks. They refuse to acknowledge that opioids and opiates have no proven benefit in chronic pain. They refuse to acknowledge that. They don't understand hyperalgesia, which is the phenomenon of pain intensifying when you use an opiate over time. They don't know what chronic withdrawal is, which is what causes the back pain. And these people whose back pain never seems to go away magically when they're on opiates. Gets worse. And they've never seen somebody go through withdrawal and what they're like when they get off the opiates, when their pain magically goes away. Or at least when they come into treatment, they're always saying the pain is... what. what Mandy, what do they tell you the pain is when they walk in the door? A 10. No, no. Without a doubt. But no, then they no, no. stretch it. Right. They do. say 15, yeah. 18, 20. They never say 10. Yeah. Uh, we ask them for on the scale of 10, and they always say it's a 15. Always. I've never had pain like this no, before. You don't understand. And two weeks later or four weeks later after we put them through, it's a, not a pleasant couple of weeks. I'll, I'll grant you. And by the way, they don't remember it nine times out of 10. They don't. Afterwards, they will. my experience is, they no longer talk about the pain. They have to be prompted to discuss the pain, and they will always say it's somewhere between a four and a six out of mm-hmm. ten. Is that your experience? Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. Yes. And mine was a one. It went down to a one. It went down to a one. Yeah, which I does mean, happen a lot. It was a workers' pain, or, comp accident, and, and literally it was a one, but I was always on. saying it was a You 15. mean the, the secondary gain of workers' comp? <laughs> Kept you on opiates three and a half and years. God forbid you 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 sort of launched into that system with where all they use is opiates to keep you locked into their system because they make money off it. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable, and people want to blame the pharmaceutical industry. They're duplicitous in all this. I don't want to say their hands are clean, but it's really not the drugs that are the problem. It's how they're deployed. It's 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 us. We're doing it. So my my frustration is no one ever goes no evidence that this is useful. And rather than saying we need to stop prescribing it for a chronic pain, the consistent position on the part of all the pain management legal system and the pain management professional system becomes, well, how do we, how do we manage the opiates that they're taking? We're just not managing it properly. Mm-hmm. We're just not giving it to them the proper they're, – they're bad patients, and we're, being, and we're not being adequate supervisors of the, you know, these bad patients. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even I, – I, I choke on it when I say that. So what do we do with that one? How do we get people to stop prescribing opiates to people in pain for longer? Not, not for acute pain. Acute pain, of course. I don't. Jason, if you had acute pain, we'd give you opiates. Yeah, you'd take them. Hundred percent. Now we'd prepare for what might happen to you on the heels of that. Well, that's that's yeah. the thing. But it, what would happen? Well, I mean, for, for me, you ever been through that? Uh, no, I mean, since I've been sober, I've yeah. never been. Pers- I mean, I've never had. Let's you say know, you need your pennies out tomorrow. What are we going to do? I would have. I would. I'd call Mandy. I'd yeah, call my sponsor. Exactly. I would you'd, call. You'd get a structure around you. Prepare 100%. for. Hundred percent. I would you, not dispense it myself. Mandy. Would, oh, for sure not. No, I'd, Mandy. Yeah. What would happen when he wakes up on his morphine infusion the next day? What would he be like? He'd be a nightmare. Right, I mean, the addiction right. is triggered. Whether he realizes that or not, uh, he, the monster is back. He would be the angry and is, irritable yeah. and uh, anticipating. Oh, without and, a doubt. And, 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 yeah. and, 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 and maneuvering and isolating. and <laughs> Every aspect of it. Yeah. Right away. Counting instant. down the time. It's been three hours and 30 minutes. You should go ahead and give it to me now because it's going to take 30 minutes before I can fill it. So that would be the four-hour mark. And <laughs> is it time for me to have another? Yeah, it shuts down. down. Yeah, and, yeah. But it would only be, I mean, he would only share that information with people he knew he could manipulate. Yeah, <laughs> Those of the rest of us would shut us off. Go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wouldn't work well with either of you because you both know me too well. Well, but, the, <laughs> but that's the point. It, the, our job is to have the skill to see through all that, to understand that. Not to go, oh, oh, hey. What I get from my peers is, you're so cruel to Jason. Why don't you give him what he needs? You're being so cruel. What, what's the draconian? And, and it's fine. He'll have Suboxone when he gets off. Mm-hmm. Or maybe some methadone. He'll be fine. But that's the problem, what you just said, what he needs. Because that's what everybody thinks is that they need these pain meds. They need to prescribe the pain meds when the truth of the matter would be he doesn't need 
He may need it for a few days. For a few yeah, days. But to be on that, he needs not to be on But not it. for maintenance or to continue. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, being in recovery, I, 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 I want to abuse ibuprofen. Sure. Right? So it doesn't Pills just go, go to mouth. the Vicodin. It's like, okay, I don't need just two ibuprofen. Yeah. I need four or six. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I had a, I had a ther- very fine therapist to work with, uh, one of the founders of several of the A programs in, the, in town here, uh, sober 25 years, and uh, she, she was taking an antibiotic. And she all of a sudden came to me. She goes, how am I supposed to take this antibiotic? I go twice a day. She goes, oh, my God. <laughs> Even now. I took this four times today. Pills go in my mouth, right. period. Right. And that's where they go. You right. don't even think. <laughs> you don't even think. They're in your mouth. Right. Yeah. For, you know, they're all gone. <laughs> I need a refill. And that's the level at which it all operates, too. It's beneath your consciousness. Your, your frontal lobes, the part that's now highly developed in your recovery. Well, it's ship, like a premeditated relapse. Before you even get to the point of using, you already have the drink in your hand and you don't know how it got there. Or, or the pills or whatever it may cocaine, be. Cocaine, the, the number one description of what led up to relapse, I have no idea. Well, right. I, I have no fucking clue. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you ever been through a relapse like that? No. No. D- don't. I'm not saying you should. I'm just, I'm just, you said it in a kind of a knowing way. Yep. You have to watch. You have to, that's why you have people around you, too, to watch. Well, I've seen it day in and day out, especially this last few weeks with a couple of very, very close friends that actually one had three oh. years, one had oh. almost five years. Went and before out. you knew it. Just a major, major relapse, and it was it was due to female uh, relationships. You know, relationships, yeah. Also. Relationships take addicts out so calmly those first five years. That, that's the number, that that and the medical system are the number one, number two reasons. Well, yeah, I, talk, I talked to him prior to him being you know inebriated or intoxicated, and within an hour and a half later, completely smashed. Well, go go dissect what happened to him and take a good look at it. I will. It's usually for sure. pretty common story. You know the, how people get there. It all sounds way too familiar. I've been there. But I think the thing that's frustrating is we see so many people in our field, Drew, and and who are 26 years in recovery, who have a knee injury, who go to the dentist, have a root canal, and they're out. And again, they didn't talk to anyone about it. They didn't have a plan because it was prescribed. So it's not like it was something that wasn't prescribed. It wasn't illegal. It's it's easy to justify in the head. It's legal. So it's prescribed by a doctor. So let's take a a closer look at that. So so do you think? And let's take the scenario you just described. So it's a 26-year sober alcoholic who dabbled in pills. I'm not really a pill guy, but I had an opiate thing for about a month. I smoked a lot of pot and maybe had some stimulus. But alcohol is my I'm an alcoholic. And goes has his knee surgery, uh, gets on the opiates appropriately for about 10 days, and magically two months later he's still getting refills and refills and refills. Okay, now he's strung out. Now it's game on. Uh, d- did the patient have a role to play in how that got going? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, 100%. for me, How? it is. I either tell the doctor I'm in recovery well, that, or I that's don't. Not, that may not go very far. That may not do you very Absolutely. much. Absolutely. No, know that 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 I used to think that's what needed to happen, and I can't tell how many times patients come back with their handful of pills, saying, "Yeah, yeah, here's what he gave me because I told him I'm a drug." It goes back to what we were just talking about. I mean, reaching out to the people there to to, to support and actually give you the meds. I mean, from the beginning, yeah, call I believe, Mandy. Yeah, call, call Mandy. Yeah. Call your sponsor. Yeah. I believe that's the first thing you do, or go in with one of them. Go in with one as a go. So so. so but 26 years sober, you can get a little hubristic, right? You still mm-hmm. overconfident. So we can't blame him for that. He said 26 successful years. But do you think Do you think on some level he wanted to get high? He was thinking, oh, this could be awesome. Be patient. I, I, I do. Okay. So so I think for sure. Yeah. And, and so on some level, he went, oh, I'll be all right. It'll be okay. So, so right there, that's addict thinking. So mm-hmm. how can you – identify in yourself that moment because once you start thinking that way you believe the justification so how do you how do you well, it's the obsessiveness that? i mean that's why it's i mean it's not obsession it's 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 think about it it's oh, it'll be awesome after the surgery it's gonna be great it, but it'll be fine i'm not i'm not a pill guy and i'm gonna tell everybody about it right afterwards and mm. you you talk to yourself in a way that makes sense well that's the but that's the insanity part of it i believe I mean, right for, for me, I mean, I look back. I, I, that's why I created that Waller's Wellness site. There's nothing that publicizes anything. It's literally, if you go back as a, as a timeline, from when you look at this timeline from when I was 17, 18, you could have Yours. known, mine yeah. personally, yeah. you could have seen that this kid is a full-blown alcoholic. He's been arrested. He's had multiple charges. Hey, already. I saw you on TV, and I was like, holy <laughs> hey, shit. You're not supposed somebody, to tell people that. <laughs> I, uh, no, I was like, is somebody going to do something for this kid? I, I told my wife. I was like, did you see that kid? So yeah, that kid is really not right. And they, they glossed it very nicely. I, I could see right through it. I was like, holy shit. Exactly. Yeah. And But that's the thing is I could justify it looking back at my whole timeline where you could see I should have stopped drinking at 18, 19, 20. How old were you 
like remember that one season that ended on the beach? You were talking to some girls. I don't know what the hell was going that on. That was. But, uh, but I remember you were you were high and drunk out there, and I was very like, so much. And, 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 <laughs> so, and you had a, I think you had a beard then or something. That was my helmet strap, my chin strap. <laughs> so, and and I and I was like, oh my god, they're gonna let that just. Go on, uh, it, it, that, and that was. Did they just not know, or nobody? You, you thought you were hiding they, it. They, I thought I was hiding it, probably for sure. But I also think that it added to what the character that they created. Oh, so they didn't it, give it a shit. Pre- oh wow, no, it was the portray of it. And I mean, because I don't it, think they. I, I want to. I, I like to not think people are sinister. I'm just going to say they didn't really understand the full. It will say that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'll agree with you. I mean, and the reality of it is, looking back now, I mean, I could see the alcoholic and addict tendencies all the way up till when I was a little kid. I mean, just. Well, you you had a other. Th- you told me something we, we've discussed it a couple times that I thought was kind of dramatic, uh, and, I, and I'm I'm not full. Maybe Mandy, you can help fully process this. But his mom had a way of um, amplify. Well, how would I describe this? You, you know what I'm going to talk about? Yeah, go for he it. He could do no wrong, mm-hmm. and and he would be abusive to other kids, and his mom would blame the other kids. <laughs> <laughs> and. and and I'm wondering what you think that did for him. Ab- above and beyond, I can't. I can't quite figure out if that just fueled his addiction, or that do something also in his personality functioning at the time. From knowing Jason and his family, because none of that's around anymore. So you know well. what I mean? Yeah, it's not yeah. around anymore, so it's hard to know what that really was. Yeah, go ahead. I think for him, it was enabling him to feel that he was invincible and special to rules and everything else he was the special yeah. golden child that do you could think do that no was a wrong. narcissism per se or was that just alcoholic stuff or does it really matter for jason i don't think it really matters but yeah. i think it was both and, and it, it often is ego. right it, it's, it's one of the few times that i see personality things really change is in mm-hmm. recovery Yes. I don't see it very changed much very often in, in, unless somebody's really interested mm-hmm. in deep work. But most people that have that stuff aren't interested in yeah. it, right? But yeah. in recovery, people become like the Jason we have today, which mm-hmm. is why I got into this field. These miracles. They just You see it and you're like, oh, my God. I want to see how that, wh- that happened. I ask myself on? every day. Yeah. Thanks, thanks to God. Well, and humility good, good and yeah, your sure. family getting into recovery themselves as well through Al-Anon say, and learning that you're not the special kid and rules do apply to you. 100%. And your parents starting to work set to limits. stop the enabling yeah. and boundaries. set boundaries and follow the boundaries. And it's yeah. what I used to – I talked to your mom about this before, that it's the empty threats with kids you know yeah. if you do that this is going to happen and then they do it and it doesn't happen and for your yeah. mom she was great at throwing pillows you never <laughs> hit rock bottom <laughs> because your mom was there with the pillow to catch you and what needed to happen but, mo- but that's, <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty much that's pretty much every mom of a severe young uh, addict because because in my in my experience regardless of the dynamic the addiction causes a fantasy in the mom. I don't know if your mom did the same thing. Every mom fantasizes, if I don't throw the pillow, this child's going to die. And then, of course, the addict takes full advantage of that. They, he, he just lets that blossom into a panic so oh, he yeah. can keep getting those pillows thrown A hundred percent. And on the right over here, we were just talking about at Northbound, a client who wrecked his car, and his dad just gave him a brand new one. There's no consequences to the actions. Well, now, I, mm-hmm. maybe I, you know, because I, you know, trained in a world where I saw this all the time, time with adolescence uh it, it when my kids were like 14 uh and you tell me man if this was too far uh i go look i, I used to take them to my treatment center and i'd let them see what you know this is what happens you know this is what mm-hmm. goes and it'd freak them out a little bit and and then when they were about 14 or so i go look i go y- you know what i do and i've done I did, I did it for 20 years i was in the field for like 20 25 years almost and uh, and i said you know i see parents not doing what they need to do all the time, and, and kids die because of it. So I just need you to know that I'm going to do it. I, I, you just you go ahead and test me because I know you will, mm-hmm. but you just know that I'm, I will bring the axe down, and it will kill me, but I will do it. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's the deal. If you have an accident around a substance, that's on you. I'm not going to bail you out. You're going to get the full extent of the law. If you develop an addiction, I'm going to make sure the cops catch you using and, again, uh, now, in my now, what I would uh, my strategy as a parent would be, I'd get a hold of that drug and th- that that judge and go, please mandate treatment. But mm-hmm. you know, if if, if punishment needs to happen, all of it, make as much as possible. And God forbid you go to a party where there's a parent serving alcohol, because I will show up with the sheriffs 
and I will have those parents hold off, and I will laugh my fucking ass off on the lawn <laughs> while they're being hold off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I said all that, and I was like, and and it, it's not going to be fun for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, just know I, I will do it because I know it's what I have to do. I know it's good for mm-hmm. you. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. And yeah. I think I wish more parents were like that. And I have eight-year-old twins, and I remember back your stories. My kids are younger, but I remember being on a playground, and my son had this tin metal car that was pretty big, and he kept throwing it into the air. So I warned him. I said, Caden, that's going to come down and hit you. And I could see the other parents, like, leaning forward and thinking I was just going to go and grab the car. He did it again. I said, Caden, that's going to come down, and it's going to hit you on the head, and it's going to hurt. He threw it the third time. It came down to him on the head. And I remember all the other moms looking at me and were like, oh, you're not going to go? And I go, no, no. I warned him. The car's going to hit. He needs to learn that there's a consequence to behaviors and that mama isn't going to come in and save him. Yeah, we don't stop the car from hitting. And we don't we don't really stop the pain once it occurs. You, you might you might give them a frame to be okay, but otherwise, mm-hmm. I, well, and yeah. I do a lot of inter- interventions. The thing that pisses me off the most, Drew, <laughs> is the family's willing to to read the letters. They're yeah. happy oh, to do that. But when you ask them the bo- what's your bottom line, if they're yeah. willing to not no. go, what's your bottom line? Uh uh-uh, uh, I can't go there. It, they're so afraid that they're going to go out and die that they will just continue to protect their there, kids. There's this, it pisses they love, me off. They this, love them to death. They, yeah. they fear they're going to die or fear they're going to ruin their relationship, which is the one that I hear all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not just on the psyche, on the, on the uh, substance side. It's also on the mental health side. I can't do a conservatorship. They'll never forgive me. Right. Okay, well, they're mm-hmm. dead. They're going to die without that. So just know that. Hand, mm-hmm. Not on me. It's on you. They're going to die. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank God for like Britney Spears' family. I keep saying we should like celebrate those parents. They dude, got a conservatorship. A that girl is fine and functioning. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's career's going good. Mm-hmm. The psychiatric treatment ha- works. That was awesome. And right? I think it's the professional's job to not sugarcoat things, you know. And I think a lot of times even professionals fall into that field of I, they'll never trust me again. Yeah, they won't open up to me. You know, and I went yeah. through this a couple of weeks ago with a mom that wanted to pull um, her child out of treatment. And I said very clearly there are three things that are going to happen. One, you're going to pull your child out of treatment and your child will attempt or commit suicide going to relapse and possibly overdose or we'll end up back in jail or a psychiatric For institution. Sure. For sure. Those are the three that's things. An easy, well, that's an easy if prediction. if I don't, the, yeah. he'll never talk to me again. Right, right. Okay, great. Yeah. He's not going to talk to you if he's six feet under right. either. Right. So make a choice. It's yeah. life and death. There's no middle ground. And I think as professionals <laughs> wanting to beat around the bush and not address what needs to be addressed, that it's life and death. There's not this well, middle ground. it's only when ground. you know it, you know, when you see it that severely, you know, that, that you understand how profound it is. Now, you and I clearly treat very, very sick. You know what I mean? We treat full-on drug addicts. Yeah. Uh, and there, but there is a middle zone developing now, I'm noticing, of people that sort of have mild addiction or something or don't have trauma. Like, we, mm-hmm. I'm sure you see a lot of the trauma that I see. The trauma yes. is sort of the, the common ingredient. That's so funny mm-hmm. you say that because I always started to say, I mean, you've heard me say this, and I don't. You know, cancer is its own battle and its own thing. But I, I, I look at addiction as there's different stages, stage one, two, three, and four. I agree with you. I agree. Without and, a doubt. And, and, and trauma mm-hmm. is what sends you over to stage four pretty quickly. Well, yeah, right. you or get, you're going to get there. Because you, right. get the, you get the alcoholic that or, or addict that is able to function through the, yeah. their everyday life and they, they end up living to 78 years old yeah, right. and, and die that mm-hmm. way. Or you All right, get the, so, so, right. So what do we do with that population that's slipping around between stage one to stage three all lifelong? And, and they are. And they're functioning. And they don't want treatment. They don't want mm-hmm. to change. And it's hard to motivate people to change. It's hard work to change. And they, you can't motivate that mm-hmm. just because there has to be something in it for them. Mm-hmm. And they don't – the well, alcohol is working too well. Well, the alcohol is working. Fighting. It's yeah. working. Why should they – they'll lose a lot of things before they want to change. Without a lot. I think yeah. it kind of goes back to what we we created a couple of years ago for some of those people with the natural highs and showing that there's a life worth living. And, you know, there was actually a lot more – to it, and I think there mm-hmm. is showing that there's that light at the end of the well, tunnel. I, I, is, is there? See, I've I've come into a zone of acceptance more. I used I used to be very like it's going to be a stage four in time. We might as well <laughs> deal with it now. And, yeah. and and I I am expert in treating the late stage addict. That's I treat you know when people were when everyone else was done with them, we used to get them. That's mm-hmm. that sort of how, and we prided ourselves on that. You know we like yeah we like them because we can mm-hmm. really do something for them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I've come to acceptance with this middle zone that. You know, it's, it's all right. It's, if people want to use and want to do their thing, and that's their life, I, I just have to accept it uh, and just be alert when things when they are ready or when things do progress. 
Well, that's the thing too. That's I always tell a lot of those guys, you know, to me when they're whether it's opiates, you know, benzos, alcohol, well, opiates, benzos, it, you're going fast. I, you know, for sure, hundred percent. No slow yeah. middle yeah, ground. That's, with that's that. easy, but just how they, so mm-hmm. dangerous now. Just fucking. well, how they justify yeah. the recreational use. There is no such thing as recreational use of any of those substances. No, not and beyond. Those. And, yeah. and, and so when people are starting to say that, I mean, when you break it down like that, they they get. They see a pretty clear picture. Well, the whole, of that. I guess the reason the whole pot discussion is is sort of where this is all the rubber's hitting the road these days. How do you guys address that? Uh, for me, it's just going to the simple studies of, of how how high the THC levels and how what it does to your brain. I mean, it's with all the brain scans and the and the scientific evidence behind things. I mean, it's you got to just be very yeah, naive. But, but but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I want to do. I want to smoke pot anyway. I, I I'm not addicted. It, I'm having no consequences. I'm fine. That was it. They're not perceiving any consequences. No, I, I know what you're saying. That's it's hard to to it's not come worse about than the that. alcoholics. What's worse than you're an alcoholic? That's worse. Yeah, and for me, it's it's really just trying to show that there's when they have that, it's it's trying to show them that there is a life. You know, I don't know anybody that functions better on any kind of substance in general, and I think it's just breaking it down. If they look at you know, the reality of it is maybe there isn't an issue with it, but there's obviously something you're trying to hide or, or cope. When you try to escape reality in general, there's there's no that there's no there's nothing that's you know suitable with that. What about middle ground psychological treatments? You know, when when people uh, you, you know the the reality is that people are showing benefit from CBTs and attachment oriented interventions, re- reducing those those stage threes say to a stage one. They don't go to zero mm-hmm. typically, but yeah. they but they get better. Is that a good thing? You know, I'm torn with that. I think that the evidence-based practices in psychology are, I mean, there's evidence behind them. I've been working a lot more with the experiential and being able to connect the mind with the heart and the feelings, you know, and really get to that. Because even if they're in that middle ground, and they could be completely functioning, but my belief is, is what Jason was kind of saying with the core, help them figure out. How either so, the drugs are helping right. at that point in time right. in their mind right. and getting them to make some type of connection through knowledge and feeling that maybe later down the road, that's what they'll remember. Not all the negatives and this is going to happen and right. this is going to be the path, but help me create something with you that you can feel. We can connect the heart to the mind. You actually feel it. And that's what you remember in a couple years when this disease progresses that that's the connection that was made, that there was a bit of knowledge as to why you were doing what you were doing at that point in time. Well, I hear you saying two things, though. One is this sort of cognitive process of making the connection, Mm -hmm. and the other is the affect regulation, Yes, uh, which I sort of call, in my little shorthand, as as an attachment-oriented intervention. Do do you guys know what we're talking about? I'm I'm pointing at Hallie and, and Jason. No, I'm following yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that as a layperson, Jason? How would I describe that, that, it? That, attaching the head to the heart stuff. Because I, I really think that's where, you know, this, that's where a, a lot of the evidence-based treatments are, are missing the, the boat. Yes. They, they really aren't giving the time and the emphasis on this kind of thing, which is where the long-term Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was. It's looking at like for me, like I say in my own story. You know, when you look at my life and the way it was, it looked like I was living the dream on the outside, but internally, it was I was the most miserable one. I mean, I couldn't stand being in my own skin. And Did I you think, know that? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, to, as as it started to develop, I mean, and that's the thing is, people. I remember it was so hard to justify because people on the outside were saying, "God, it, from the outside looking in, it looks so amazing." Like mm-hmm. it's the life that you had, but deep down, it was like I said with the Philip Seymour Hoffman relation. It was like I would be a person that had a hundred people in his house, um, you know, for a party, and I'd be in the bathroom by my snow, by myself, snorting cocaine and drinking straight from the bottle, and walk out with a beer and pretend everything was okay because that. And I looked at that, and I, I mean, I was able to justify how that seemed like it was normal but in reality i knew there was some huge huge issue there and that was just being comfortable in my own skin yeah. and i and when i found that i had a you know my life was worth living and I, you know I, I had enough respect for myself that's where a lot of this came into play because even when i got sober when we first met you know it was it wasn't for me in the beginning it was because my disease took me not to contemplating but attempting suicide um and it was the reality of sitting down with my parents and seeing that family connection that we had that was so close to say that hey look at I'm not going to do it for myself, but in the beginning, they were my motivation. I was going to do it for them. And then inevitably, it turned into myself once I got sober because I hadn't been sober for years, and I had, had alcoholic thinking for the last 15 years. That was normal thinking. There, there, was, just, there was no way to yeah. see around that until yeah. I got proper education on it and was able to see that, you know, look, it, you have something that you need to deal with. And instead of drowning it and really figuring out what that is, I did a lot of due diligence and a lot of research on myself. And, you know, I found out that 
I have a, a, a life that's worth living, and it took a long time. Yeah, and I, I, Hallie, for I, me, I, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with your point of view. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison Rosen from Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here with this week's guest, Wink Martindale, and his lovely wife, Sandy. Wink and Sandy, why should they listen this week? Well, because we had a lot of fun talking to you. We talked about Elvis. We talked about my career, which has been fun over the years, and uh, a lot more. And because you are now our best friend. Subscribe to Allison Rosen as your (laughs) new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. I love you. Allison's your new best friend. The Dr. Drew Podcast is brought to you in part by TrueBrain. TrueBrain is a neuroscience company that has created the world's first drinks made from active neurotropics designed to improve focus, memory, and mental clarity. The Dr. Drew Podcast listeners can get their first supply at 40% off. I've actually used this stuff. If you remember, we had neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Hill on my show. He's a Ph.D., neurocognitive neuroscientist, and nootropic expert. So 40% off. Check it out at TrueBrain.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W. Again, TrueBrain is a neuroscience company. It's created the first functional beverage made with active nootropics to improve focus, memory, and mental clarity. Many people are already leveraging TrueBrain to get things done. Users include writers, CEOs, athletes, programmers, lawyers, craftsmen, doctors, and podcast hosts. That's right. They gave me supply, and I've used it. TrueBrain comes in a monthly supply to your door, so the listeners can get their first box for $29.99. It's normally $50. By going to the link, truebrain.com slash Drew. Again, the Dr. Drew podcast listeners get their first supply 40% off, truebrain.com slash Drew. Again, that is truebrain.com slash Drew to get your 40% off your first supply. Back to Dr. Podcast. I'm here with Jason Waller, Dr. Mandy Niebel. Niebla? Niebel? Niebel. Niebel. You just put an R in the end of your name. It's much easier. Niebler like sounds. It just rolls off. Niebler rolls off your tongue about it. And Hallie Metzler. Hallie, you were going to tell us about your your feeling about this mind-body connection, mind-heart connection. Yeah. I think I always struggled with the I'm not enough syndrome, right? I was never smart enough, pretty enough, successful enough. I was never enough. And so whether it was the, the opiates, whether it was the food piece – um, even if let's say that I, I smoke pot occasionally, I'm still, I'm still not comfortable in my own skin. I'm still trying to use something to manage the social anxiety. And so for me, I look at as a society, we have so many distractions, phone, TV, video games that even if you rarely smoke pot, it's still another distraction, right? And, and why put more distractions? We, we struggle with the society of not being able to stay mindful and be present. Um, and I think that's where I went. I just couldn't be present. Because I just didn't want to be present. So uh, there, there's actually a lot packed uh, in what both of you yeah, said. Well, I want to even yeah. add on that is, yeah. and that's the thing that's hard too is is what society depicted, what is awesome, whether it's fame, cars, mm-hmm. money, girls, everything that I had at one point, yeah. and and that's the reality. It's like, okay, what is worth living? I have what everybody says is so amazing, yeah. and, and that was another piece to it. It was like, okay, what else is there to life? Yeah. But and to you, they were medicators. A hundred percent, and I see that now. But during that time, that's how deep the denial was. So that's well, it was filling the void, and they probably worked on a short-term basis, but the void did. kept opening up and kept having to fill it with more. And What's well, a prime example of how I utilize that with people I work with now? It's like when you get a car, it's an instant gratification. If you get a new car, you love it. You know, At first, you don't want anybody sitting in it. You don't want to, yeah. and then over time, you don't care if it gets dirty or yeah, it's just a car. It just becomes <laughs> it's just a another car. thing. So, all right. So, there's a ton packed into what you guys are talking about here, and, and I'm fascinated by this whole field. And by the way, if people uh, listening want to get more in detail of what I think we're about to launch into here, and, and Gary, maybe you could put the episodes up for me, the uh, Alan Shore episodes and the, uh, um, oh crap. Um, <laughs> It's a good one. What's the other guy's name? Uh, uh, Shore, episode 65. And then my other hero. Porges. Porges. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was going to say Porter, but Porges. Those two episodes are good. So how the the mind and the body hook up. Porges, 63 and 90. Um, and this, this magical thing of the interpersonal space and how connecting with others connects us to ourself. You want to talk about that a little bit, Manny? Is that too esoteric a topic to get into? I mean, we can go there. I think um, if I'm understanding what you're saying, just the the basic need for human interaction and people well, utilizing I, that to fill. Yeah, it's their not own. just fill it. I, I'm saying that 
other minds, other brains heal other brains. You know mm-hmm. that that that's kind of how to by Gail Carnegie how to win and influence people in in a way, in a but, but it, in a sense, but in recovery, if you notice, you're healing because of your relationship with your peers and your therapist, and yeah, and and really that uh, that connection, that attachment, and that ability to have emotions in the presence of another person, that person empathize Mm -hmm. and co-create with you an environment we call the interpersonal or in a subjective space that allows you to enhance, regulate, feel things that you just don't feel left to your own addict brain. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, the magic of all this. I think it's the basis of AA meetings. Well, it's the base, absolutely. And the base of the sponsor, the base of everything. But it, but you, and you mentioned, Hallie, also mindfulness, which is another piece of this. Do you do you use specific mindful techniques, or is that just something you're just sort of aware no, of? No, absolutely. I mean, and I it was a daily practice. I mean, I hated doing it. I mean, again, it was like, just do it for five minutes. I don't want to sit with myself for five minutes, right. nor my thoughts. I mean, I think we, we are the – I'm the worst critic to myself, as we say that, right? I mean, I don't want anyone to go in my head. Um, but yoga was instrumental for me for an hour looking at myself in a mirror and just being able to repeat the mantra, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. Did, did you use a yoga – was it a yoga therapist or a yoga professional that understood this field? Because that's that that yoga is rapidly growing as an important intervention with all this. So. Yeah, I and for me it was yoga with positive affirmations. There's some yoga. Do you that, develop your own affirmation? Or absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, and then having a teacher repeat those mantras, whatever that looks like. I mean, there's some yoga that's straight vinyasa, and it's all about the workout. There's some where it's really about taking the mind, like you were saying, taking the mind, connecting it to the heart. And and does that does another person sort of stay in proximity with you as you're making that connection? Yeah, and and basically, I, really, I personally believe that only happens from other humans. Agreed. Our brain doesn't naturally do that. And you have to have that proximity in order for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And addicts push that proximity away. And what you realize in yoga, right, when that instructor starts breathing in, yep, you'll do it too. Breathing out, you start doing it. Right. I'm not consciously That's doing it. That's called attunement. We call that attunement. Absolutely. And yeah. I think we need that in life. We need those attunements. We need those okay. mentors, those life coaches. Right. Everybody who's listening, listen extremely carefully to this conversation because this is something that's not talked about much in our world. And no. it is... It is all the cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral all those things are really good. But this stuff does not get emphasized enough. And it's really where long-term change happen, comes from. It's where things like happiness come from or whatever that term means. We could argue about all day. Uh, and it's where healing and regulation of the emotions and connection of brain and heart, mm-hmm. all that comes from these kinds of phenomenon. So yoga, mindfulness. Do you use a lot of that, Mandy? And you're, do you refer the people for that kind of thing these days? Yeah, we actually yeah. have that built into treatment. So I have different therapists that I have lined up that utilize that within their groups and individual therapy. Okay. And did you do, you do some there, of that now? Uh, well, I mean, I do all that along with, I mean, something that was huge for me is like they say, you know, giving back to others. I mean, there's nothing more self-gratifying than giving back to others and not looking well, for anything well, in return. Finally, there's now this research coming out in happiness research. It was in the paper that the New York Times this weekend um, that shows that in terms of your long-term sense of satisfaction, well-being, whatever word you want to use, buying something for yourself has not nearly as much impact as giving something to somebody else. Literally, when I have a shitty day now, I will either go down to, whether it be the soup kitchen, down to the Canyon Club, reach out to, there's a group of people that I always just kind of want to be intertwined with. I'll drop everything and just go be with them because I know that when I'm in my head, it's the worst place to be. And I, I end up usually having a much better day. And, and that's and this... I- I would also argue – I'm sorry that I'm sort of going off here because this stuff really excites me. But but that that it's not just going and being of service, though that's important. It's also really – It's the connection with with one another. I mean that's that's the whole thing is is to be able to get out of myself. But to have that it, – it's amazing to see the the different demographics, the different lifestyles. I mean for me it's just to get out of my, my skin and start to get and be with somebody else. Do you have ex- mm-hmm. other examples of other sorts of offerings that you might give somebody in that setting? Obviously, you're giving them food, but are there no, other No, I mean, it, honestly, I'll, I'll go with them, and, and whether it be go down to the beach, uh, it could just be of just going over their day-to-day stuff and what they're going through to get out of my, you know, for so me. Just it's empathizing. It's totally just oh, therapeutic, even though I'm not a therapist or yeah. anything, but it's just straight up talking to them. And get yeah. out, you know, what's going on with you today? What You know, can we go do something? You know, what do you feel like doing? And again, Mandy, all the research is showing that's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex now that is the latest thing to develop in the human. It develops mm-hmm. from empathy and practicing empathy. And so. Well, and let me say with the eating disorder, right, you're all in your head. 
But again, part of that mindfulness for me was being in my body and, and being able to be present in my body. And that's really hard for someone with an eating disorder because you're not mindful, but it is a mind like a mind fuck, I would almost say, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that also helps really with the eating disorder, the anorexic, the bulimic, is being able to be aware of your body and stay present versus allowing your mind to drift away. And that's a big part of meditation is just staying present right. for five minutes. So meditation, yoga. How about prayer? Has, I, I, I pray daily. And that's the thing that, I mean, for me, I know if I wake up and I, I have a, a regimen, I read, get on my knees, I pray. And, and, you know, I, uh, I, I read my daily reflections or it's my Jesus calling book or whatever, you know, and it's, uh, something that I live by. And I know if I don't do that, I honestly can tell the difference immediately within the day. If it's something I, for, you know, I don't have time or I rushed out and do, you know, and I didn't, I didn't follow through with it. My day is never the same. I noticed mm-hmm. it right away. Hallie? Um, I'm a huge believer in that. I believe in praying with other people. Uh, I think there's power in not just myself and God, but myself and praying with someone else. What, what do you tell people that have uh, issues with the God concept in recovery? What do you? How do you help them through that? I, for me yeah. personally, or go ahead. I mean, I work with them from where they're at at that point in time and Let's figure say I'm out. I'm a confirmed atheist, I'm a, and it really bothers me when people. Talk, I just hate it when people talk about that. It drives me crazy. Well, let's look at what do you believe in. Right. And let's go, we'll make that connection. So, so I, I look for some concept of faith. Yeah. Are mm-hmm. you, how about the laws of physics or how about mm-hmm. the nature? Or Whatever. As long as it's something. The elliptical orbit of the earth around the sun or some, something. Yeah. As long as it's something more powerful yeah. than, so you. than you. As long as you right. will let go of that. Right. I mean, we've had people be yeah. kids where it's a tree, mm-hmm. the ocean, um, you yeah. know, literally a rock. And, I mean, and for them, does prayer become more of a meditative experience? Without a doubt, yeah. you know, and I think that that's, at that point in time, that's the connection we can make. And I worked with, I've worked with adolescents and worked with mostly men in the forensic arena. And when I came over to Northbound, I had a group of men that were atheists and there were, there was no higher power for them. That was mm-hmm. the biggest part that was hardest for them to accept going to meetings was the higher power piece. So for them, what I did was take them to the ocean. And I had them stand in the ocean when the waves were coming at them. And I said, stop the wave. Mm. And when they couldn't stop the wave, that's the connection to the higher power, something that was more powerful than them in that moment. What's that? Just and knocked that them was, up. <laughs> <laughs> was, I remember they tried to stop me, and I was like, what are they doing? What are you yeah, trying to do? But it was a connection yeah. that they yeah. were able to make. Yeah, I've, that's had, I've what had many addicts talk for. about They literally will kind of make go, you mean, you mean the world will not fall off its axis if I don't control everything? Mm. You mean that? Really? They're like <laughs> stunned by that. What? I, mean, I, don't, I don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the simplest part of prayer is just have them start the gratitude list, right? That's not even praying. It's like, you know what? Let's just go hey, through gratitude. what you're grateful for. That's see, not, see, and that becomes I, a prayer. I hope people who are listening to this are not going, well, it doesn't apply to me. I'm not a drug addict. These are all healthy living uh, for all humans. How I would suggest that whether you're an addict or not. Yeah, you know? All of this. All of this is how, yeah. to, how to be happy. And by happy, I mean fulfilled, nourished, okay, good in your skin, mm-hmm. having a good life rather than the, the good – wait – yeah, rather than the good life, reading leading a good life. You know, if everyone worried about you were leading the good life at one time. What's so good, was it? No, and that's the thing is gra- gratitude list is something that it, when that's another thing when I'm when I'm in my head or something, I just put down a gratitude list. I mean, there's so much to be thankful for. Just I mean, from from your general health to to where we live. I mean, everything. So. Not to dive into too much of that, but that's a big part of mine. I'm grateful mm-hmm. for the TV show The Nick. Do you guys watch The Nick? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, you three are out of your minds for not watching it. It's, it's a it? first. Oh, it's awesome! It's a it's a story. It's a really well done uh, series. You know, like Mad Men or Boardwalk uh-huh. Empire. These very very highly you know high, Showtime HBO. It's on on uh, Cinemax. Cinemax. And it's a okay. Soderbergh. You know, the Clive Owen is the uh, mm-hmm. is the lead guy. And you have to go get the set. You have to watch it. It's, it's the best thing. For, and you guys will love it because it's about a hospital at the turn of the century in New York City called the Knickerbocker. Hmm. And the lead surgeon, and it, and it, and it services an under, you know, underprivileged community, so it's a lot of addicts, alcohol, and stuff. And the lead surgeon is this brilliant, cavalier, out of control, you know, cuts on and does everything, but is just, you know, saving lives and developing techniques, IV cocaine addict. And no it, way. yeah, it's awesome. How have we been it's, missing? It's, it's, it's like Nurse Jackie. <laughs> it's it's like Nurse Jackie in terms of its accuracy, but it's much more historic, okay. with and much more. Uh, 
I don't want to say stylized, richer in terms of the environment and stuff. Okay. And and here's why I bring it up, aside from the fact that my, my love for it. Uh, and <laughs> uh, the very last – finally, his disease progresses during the season. It progresses, progresses. He gets more – he gets psychotic finally, and it's you know what you, exactly what you'd expect. And he's using enough of it. If you wonder while you're watching why it seems so opioid, he's using – if you use enough cocaine, you get opioid effects, mm-hmm. and you'll get an opioid withdrawal and stuff from it. Yeah, yeah. you got to use a lot. And so he was using that much, and he gets these opioid withdrawals. He's shooting it into the vein in his penis. I mean they, they full-on drug addict stuff. Oh, they don't – they spare no – you know, they don't hold back. They don't – they draw the curtain all the way back on the full wow. addiction process. But at the end, he goes to this special. He finally is going to – it's the very end of the season. He's going in for treatment. And uh, and it's a treatment center. And, you know, it's where these, this is the new thing. We, we always see this all the time. It's cocaine. We know what this is. They're a very knowledgeable group. They know addiction. They, they conceptualize it as an illness. You know, you start hearing language. This feels very familiar to all of us. And so the environment's very familiar, and, and they have a detox unit. And he goes, come on up to the detox unit. The doctor goes, oh, yes, yes. We, oh, yes. Here's how it's going to go. The paranoia is from this. You're going to have three days of this kind of withdrawal. And he's absolutely accurate. And he goes, but now we have this new treatment that's going to make this so much more comfortable for you. <laughs> and he injects him, and you pull back. This is the very last second of the season. You pull back, and you see the vial he's just drawn out from heroin. He's injecting it with heroin as his treatment for cocaine addiction. And I start jumping up and down and screaming at my wife going, we're still doing that. It's still what we do to drug addicts. We have a different, two different drugs now, but that's still what we do. Now we call it Suboxone and Methadone, but we are still, 100 years later, still giving opiates to opiate addicts. And I, I don't, why, you might as well give heroin. I don't care. That's fine. Get them a long-acting heroin. Why, why is heroin worse than Suboxone? I, I tell, yeah, Suboxone's a partial antagonist. I understand. It's a little better. Pharmacologically. But from the standpoint of the overall process of the disease, it's the same, same. It's a goddamn it's philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. When I ex- have to explain it in layman terms to the parents, because I get pushed back with that a lot, I'm like, let's put it in an easy way for you to understand. There's Coke and there's Diet Coke. They're both Coke. One has less fat and less caffeine. And then the parents are able to... To kind understand of and wrap their head around it. Now, now, but it's but the now, same now thing, here, same here's where I have, have I get get weird about it, which is that Suboxone does save lives. Mm-hmm. It, it will. That's a fact. You you can't deny that it will save lives. It will make you chronically ill, but it will save your life. So making that judgment, I, I'm having a I, I I don't I will not I just as a policy. Don't use replacement therapies. I just don't. That's just I don't. A quick fix. It's well, whatever it is, it's not what I do. It's not the kind of treatment I use. And somebody else, you go. If you want that, you need to see it. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. refer you to the guy that will mm-hmm. do it. If if you want that, but I that's not what I do. If mm-hmm. you want to crack it, being like Jason or being like Hallie, that's what I do. But it's mm-hmm. not without its risk. Mm-hmm. People die trying to get sober. It happens a lot. So how do we ethically? You know, when we're challenged by our peers, how do we, how do we navigate those waters? Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm um, if someone and by the way, I can't even run that, a, I can't even run yeah. a unit when there's an opiate on it because all the other addicts spin like tops. He gets it, and I don't. They can like smell it. I can't. I can't run the unit. Nobody can focus on their treatment because yeah. they're like, where's the drug? You know, mm-hmm. so I just don't even allow it on the unit. I, if you want mm-hmm. it, go up to the main psych unit, get it. That's fine. Yeah. But anyway, finish your your comment. I mean, I, I'm i a strong advocate against using Suboxone maintenance. I truly am. I believe but, but, but that— But I, I, you obviously we're, we're together on this. Mm-hmm. But how do you navigate those ethical waters from our peers who tell us, mm-hmm. but they're back to functioning, they're not as crazy as they were, and they're not dying? Mm-hmm. How can you justify getting a Jason if you're going to risk their life? I mean, my question back to them would be, how do you justify leaving them on a medication that could potentially they would have say, long-term effects the, later that eventually they're going to have to a, detox a, off of? That's a great point. We don't know. We, we don't know the, the long-term effects, but, I, but I'm going to play the role of the advocate. In the meantime, they're safe and they're not dying. And I'm a doctor and my job is to make first do no harm. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing with whether... It's a choice that has to be made when they enter detox or they enter treatment. Either way, it can be the exact same outcome. 
they could be like Jason and go on and do what they need to do and have the support network of the doctors and the psychiatrist and the psychologist and their therapist or and I can't case afford manager. That. I don't have time for that. Yeah. Or I got to get back on the road. I'm a rock star. I got to But what's going to make them survive with Suboxone when they leave treatment? How are they not going to abuse that? Who's going to monitor that? Is it going to work? I mean, it's the exact same thing. Well, that whether we use it or yeah. we don't use there's it, some, I, so, think so I think So I think what you're yeah. saying, A, we got to select, we got to carefully select the patients that we think have a crack at real sobriety. Without a doubt. So, we, so there are patients that we would say, no, no, take replacement. It's mm-hmm. true. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. That's the best they're going to do. And, and that's good for them. They're going to survive and they're going to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to make sure that those that should be going for full sobriety are not being shortcutted. Well, that's the thing. I think that medication was created for those super chronically, chronically ill. Yeah, but they're being, it's being advocated for. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that LA, there will be a, there will be an editorial for that LA Times article I referenced earlier in this conversation mm-hmm. that will say, well, thank God we have Suboxone. See, that's why we have Suboxone. We've got to refer all those people but, for Suboxone. That's the same thing yeah. with, with Oxycontin. It's pers- it, was, it was created for cancer. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, yeah. but people cancer are taking pain. it for arthritis now. Well, it's it, chronic pain. That's the real problem, <laughs> the chronic pain. Yeah. Hallie, well, you've been quiet. Hallie, what do you think? No, I mean, I was just going to say we have all of these methadone clinics. I mean, I see them everywhere, and I I, I can't see how it's helping when you well, can abuse that. Keep them alive. Yeah, no, but no, you, it, you, for me though, no, if, I'm, if I'm a friend, I like t- I'm going to start sharing, and I'm going to start taking oh, more. And we're seeing in treatment the number of milligrams people are coming on methadone. It yes. is it is well, bigger but, and bigger but, but and bigger. That's how the practicing team deals with what you're talking about. Because remember, the philosophy is just give them what they need. Mm-hmm. If they're having trouble and they're behaving strangely and they're starting to behave in addict fashion, they have a deficiency of methadone. We have mm-hmm. to give them more. Right. And so most methadone addicts, when they're getting enough, are on the couch. Mm-hmm. They can't get off the couch. Right. I certainly couldn't get off the couch. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. So they're on 150 milligrams, or 100, right? Is that what you're seeing? 150, 200 milligrams? What was the one? We just saw 180, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's where they're hard. going. I mean, in the, de- and, and the detox impossible. is impossible. Impossible. And it's forever. So you have people coming months. in. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they get psychotic in the withdrawal, too, right. which is a really oh, weird. A doubt. Yeah. But that's a weird thing that only methadone, other opiate addicts don't get crazy. You can't even touch the chemical dependency at that point and start getting them to work a recovery no, program because all you're dealing with this, the withdrawal, the withdrawal symptoms. There's They're no terrible. therapy. There's nothing that can take place during that time. It's yep. treating every symptom of the withdrawal, and you're not doing anything for, for the actual for recovery or rehabilitation. And most of them are not private pay, right? So they're on insurance. Insurance is going to cover six months of detox. No. So then what do we do with them? Yeah, I know. Listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, <laughs> with that, with that happy thought, everybody. <laughs> so, so, um, well, it's you know you and I talked a little bit before the mics heated up. Was that there needs to be a standard out there? Maybe we can all help contribute to a standard of of, of this kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. You know that there, that there there is a distinction between replacement therapies, which again I I don't want to pass judgment on any more than I want them passing judgment on me going for abstinence based treatments. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the, the everyone's trying to help people. Everyone's trying mm-hmm. to help addicts. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. I, I understand that, uh, but I, I would just say look at the. The proof's in the pudding, as it were. Look, yeah, look at the look at the pudding. glorious mm-hmm. outcomes, which is what got me into the field. I didn't come tr- – you didn't either. You came mm-hmm. through forensics. I came through general medicine, and I just mm-hmm. saw these these things happen. I was like, whoa, whoa what was that? What, what, how did Hallie happen? How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you and, see uh, the miracle. And I, but I had no idea what was happening. I was like <laughs> just fascinated. Like, what was that? How did, and so that's how I got, I got further and further in, sort of getting deeper and deeper into the treatment uh, elements and procedures and mm-hmm. finally getting good at it. So with that, guys, we've got to wrap it up. Um, and of course, it's always you know great for me to I hope the listeners like as much as I do talking to you guys. Oh, I appreciate it. I get, I, get high, I get high specifically talking about this stuff, uh, and I cannot talk about it enough, and I don't think it can be talked about enough because two, two reasons. One is we need people to understand much more clearly what this all is because it's one of the most common medical illnesses of, and the, in fact, my opinion, the medical problem of our time. Uh, and two, anybody can benefit from the concepts that come out of these treatments. It's it's such mm-hmm. a human disease with a human it's – a, it's a human illness with an interpersonal solution. 
It's a human condition with a human solution, and it's other humans that, that provide that solution. Uh, and to me, that's kind of magical and philosophical and spiritual and all those things together. And mm-hmm. it just you guys can't see this, but they're all nodding their head vigorously as I say this. Yeah, yeah, we know what you mean. I hope, I hope everyone else gets a, kind of a better sense of it. Uh, let's review where, you, where we can see this documentary. Where should they look for it, Jason? I'll have it out on uh, on my site or on social media. Okay, and the site done. is Waller's Wellness, W-A-H-L-E-R-S dot com. Waller Jason is the Twitter handle, Eat True Hollywood Story, out in November. And I'm PO'd that I'm not in it, but I'll be there to promote it anyway. Awesome. Uh, and you guys, we can see you at Northbound Treatment Center at livingsober.com. Yes. Uh, and a phone number, 866-538-4356. Dr. Mandy Nebel. Yes. Got it. Hallie got Etzler. It. Did, I, Mets, did I get it right? Yes, you did. And Jason Waller. Thank you guys for joining me. I hope you join me again soon. Thank and you. Uh, we'll see everybody next time. Thank you very much. For call-in times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. This is Corolla Digital.